This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Ohio versus the world, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio versus the world is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to EvergreenPodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's part two of Ohio vs. Revolution. If you missed part one, please go back from last week. Go back and listen to it. Otherwise, you'll be jumping in like when I'm coming in the room and my wife's watching Downton Abbey and I ask her, who's that? I thought he was dead. I have no idea what's going on. But go back, listen to part one. We are part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Don't forget, you can get all our old shows at evergreenpodcast.com. There's some other great history shows on there like Conflicted. And This American President with Richard Lamb, really good stuff. Today we're going to pick up the story of the American Commandante. When we said before on the last episode that this, this story had been picked up for a, an option on a movie with Adam Driver agreeing to play the title role, this episode, episode two, is why. And to recap episode one, William Morgan from Toledo, kind of a nobody, somehow ends up joining the Cuban Revolution, becomes a top commander known as the Commandante in the Revolution, he wins multiple battles, meets a beautiful rebel woman, gets married. They win. The dictator, Valencio Batista, leaves the island, leaves, leaves it to the rebels, led by Fidel Castro, and they win an improbable victory, and they take over Cuba. And that's where we left it in January 1959. Where Morgan's story goes in Cuba from there is the opposite of what he told a reporter in January of 59. After he captured the city of Cienfuegos, the revolution's over, he said, and I quote, all I'm interested in is settling down to a nice, peaceful existence, unquote. Well, that's the exact opposite of what occurred. And today we'll finish the Ballad of William Morgan. It's part two of episode eight, Ohio vs. Revolution. in the United States liked Fidel Castro in January of 1959. Our government didn't, certainly. We didn't know he would be a communist dictator at the time. He promised free elections within 18 months. But the U.S. government was still among the first, I think maybe the second country, to recognize uh, Castro's new Cuba. Castro comes to the United States just a few months after the revolution, and he's celebrated. He goes to Mount Vernon to see George Washington's home. He's mobbed in the streets of New York. He meets with Malcolm X and poets like Langston Hughes and Beatnik Allen Ginsberg. Our guest, Tony Perrottet, the author of the fascinatingly entertaining book, Cuba Libre, came out in 2019. He's a writer for Smithsonian Magazine. He tells us about Castro's trip to America in 1959 in April. And we'll hear the newsreel coverage from the States of that historic visit. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of support for him in the States because he seemed to sort of like, here's a bunch of young, sexy 
guys and gals, you know, they, they, you know, they were featured in, in a Life magazine and you know, Paris Match and sort of like, you know, uh, it, they were just like so much, so cool in like 1959 compared to the stodgy Eisenhower world. So things are sort of already changing to the 60s a little bit. So they seem like harboring as of that. He was beloved and sort of, you know, like as if he was like one of the, you know, the revolutionaries of the War of Independence. It, it sort of, Americans saw him as like representing their, their, their better selves in a way. And so he comes and he's like mobbed in, uh, in DC, meets Nixon, and then gets the train to New York and he does the sights. He's like a, it's like a diplomatic tourism tour. He goes to Central Park, he goes to the Bronx Zoo, he sticks his hand in the lion cage, you know, and like, you know, he gets a hot dog in, at the beach and everyone loves him. And like New York, New York Press and the US Press just covers every step and like with his adulation and he's got his guys there you know, he's got, and you know, some of them are African. I'm like, what? You know, and so he's got the, this whole sort of, um, you know, aura. Uh, and, the, you know, and there's the sexy women. And it's like, you know, so everyone's like, wow, this is like, this is something, you know, a glimpse of the future in a way. Like the 60s are starting already in a way. And um, uh, so, so you, know, the, you know, the rebel with the cause sort of thing. So everyone really falls for him. And he's very charming. He speaks a bit of English. Newspapers talk about, you know, women swooning. You know, that's the biggest thing to happen to New York women since Rudolph Valentino. It's like, you know, it's a really sort of, uh, you know, this, it's, a, it's a love affair. A tumultuous welcome for Fidel Castro. A cheering, singing, flag-waving crowd of thousands greets the Cuban revolutionary leader and premier. As on arrival, he pushes past police and security guards to return the enthusiastic greetings despite rumors of assassination plots against him. Outside Penn Station, police break up a demonstration by a few supporters of Cuba's ousted dictator Batista. And Castro, in a record slow time of 24 minutes, crosses the street to his hotel, almost swamped by the excited crowd. It's one of New York's most enthusiastic receptions for a visiting notable in quite a while. It seems the revolution is over, but William Morgan's trouble has just begun. He was a celebrity in Cuba. He and Olga were expecting, and he's living the post-revolution life at, at the Capri Hotel in Havana. He's at the bar one day when he's told an old friend, Frank Nelson, a bagman for the mob, had come to see him. you got to remember from part one, you know, William Morgan did some work for the mob in Toledo, in Miami, and Detroit. And I'll just let William Morgan tell you what happens next. In March, uh, an American by the name of uh, Frank Nelson came here and uh, got in contact with me and he said, Thank you. I have some people who want to give you a million dollars. And I'll be very blunt about it. I said, fine, but who do, you want, who do you want me to kill? William agrees to go to a meeting with Nelson. When he gets there, there's a former chief of police from the dictator uh, Batista uh, is there. Another Ohio connection, Dominic Bartone, and he recognizes him as an associate of the Cleveland mob. Frank Nelson's there in the consul from the Dominican Republic. Batista's living in the Dominican Republic after he fled a few months back. Nelson knows that William Morgan and his second front have been shut out. This plot, it's not just a mob plot. Honestly, they're a smaller part of it. They want Castro gone because he's going to shut down their clubs and the casinos. They fear, and they're right, the mob's right, they would be pushed out of Havana. But Michael Sala, our, our guest and author of the amazing book, The Yankee Comandante, he tells us why they think old Billy Morgan might help him. Yeah, Nelson basically represents the mob's interests. And he approaches Morgan. And by the time the revolution is over, 
and both sides have arrived in Havana. The second front is left out of any power positions. They're really giving, they're given nothing. And so at that point, um, it was pretty well known that Castro didn't like them. They were separate. At that point, Nelson says, look, we know y'all are not getting along. So we got a plan here. We want to kill Fidel. We want to assassinate, eliminate Fidel. The price is a million dollars. If you remember from episode one, the second front up in the Escambray Mountains, that was Morgan and the leader of the second front, Manoyo's rebel gang that fought off uh, Batista's army, ended up freeing a bunch of cities and led to the, to the overturning of the government. They refused to quit their organization. They kept their uniforms. They patrolled Havana. In his book, Yankee Comandante, our guest Michael Sala describes a meeting around this time when Fidel and Manoyo and Che Guevara and Raul Castro all meet. Che's demanding they retire their weapons and their entire movement and just fall in line. Manoyo pulls a gun on Che. Everyone pulls out their guns. Uh, and Fidel kicks everyone out of the room saying the meeting's over. But it was tense. Manoyo was the leader of the Second Front and Morgan decides to tell him about this offer he got. See what he thinks they should do. Michael walks us through Morgan and Manoyo's decision and their process when they decide to go tell Fidel. Morgan tells him, look, I will entertain this so we can stay in touch. So Morgan goes to Manoyo and they talk about it. They all gathered at this Chinese restaurant in Havana and they talked about it there. And he told them everything. Manoyo and him actually considered it. In the end, they realized they're all kind of on the same team, even if they don't get along, and that this may not be the best thing in the world for our side either. They decide they're going to tell Fidel. Olga and Morgan, and I believe Manoya was there as well, go and visit Fidel. At this point in the spring and summer of 1959, Morgan is taking meetings, and the plot is a lot more involved and developed than he thought. Dominican Republic dictator Rafael Trujillo is the clear mastermind. They're throwing in millions of dollars at this plan. Batista living in the Dominicans behind it as well. But Morgan is the central figure. He's supposed to raise an army of his followers. He's going to kill or execute a hit on Fidel. Trujillo, who is a just an absolute terrible dictator, but he's an anti-communist, so the United States backs him and his repressive regime. Uh, Olga, Manoyo, and Morgan, they make the trip to Fidel Castro's home to tell him about this plot. Celia Sanchez, who was his live-in girlfriend, whatever you want to call her at the time, secretary, receives them in the home. And Olga writes a beautiful passage in her diaries, how they go up and Fidel's on a bed reading all these magazines, and, you know, keeping up with his journals, smoking a cigar. And he welcomes a man. Morgan tells him the whole story. Fidel is fascinated by this. He is like, okay. Draw them out. We got to pull together a plan here. At that point, it had evolved with Nelson, not just to kill Fidel, but to take over. There would be mercenaries in arms that would be arriving to take over and to take over the military and everything else. And Rafael Trujillo, the Dominican strongman in the DR, the Dominican Republic, who was another American puppet, anti-communist, was funding this. So Trujillo is the brains and the money and everything behind this whole operation. Trujillo hated Castro and always felt a bit less secure in his Dominican Republic role as long as Fidel had taken over Cuba. So he wanted Fidel out for his own reasons. 
this all comes out in this conversation with Fidel when Morgan conveys all this information in addition to them wanting Fidel's head for a million dollars. So he says, draw them out. Let's plan this well. Play double agent. And so Morgan goes along and he plays double agent. And Fidel makes sure that Morgan gets a huge home in Miramar, one of these million dollar homes, believe it or not, even back then, that he would move in there and all the rooms would there would be tape recorders. Everything would be recorded. Um, Fidel would put some members of his unit in with Morgan and they would all play as if they were part of this scheme. And that's how Morgan gets used in the middle of this international scheme. Fidel says we're going to bug your house. A lot of the meetings are happening there. Fidel has a secret guard live at the house to watch everything and report back to him. The Batista guys, a couple of them move in to help with the plot. Morgan is on a shortwave radio that the plotters set up, and he's having meetings with Trujillo, the, the leader of the Dominican Republic. They're developing this plan, and at the same time, Fidel is recording everything. The mob's paying visits. They think they're dealing with the old Toledo mob enforcer Billy Two Guns Morgan, not this Yankee commandante that he is now. He's been transformed by the revolution. And the house is bugged. He hears Batista guys that are living in the house talking about how they're going to kill him. They're going to kill Morgan once all this is over. So the stress of this is just overwhelming. He's got Fidel who's watching him. He could have wiped him out at any time. He's planning on crossing the mob. They'll kill him. He knows these coup plotters from the old regime. They want to kill him. It's crazy. This is a guy not trained in espionage tactics, but here he is. He's from Toledo, Ohio. And he's doing this so that the second front will be treated better, show their value, and be invited into this new government. I think about Olga the whole time. She's, you know, pregnant Olga. She's talking to him about, let's just move to Miami, or she's willing to move to Toledo, whatever. William, you can go back to the United States. You can sell your stories, write a book, sell the movie rights. He's a celebrity in the U.S. too at this moment. And the Cuban Revolution's hot news, and it would sell. He's taking meetings in Miami. He's going back and forth between, between Cuba and the United States. The coup plotters, and she's worried that they're going to kill him when he's in the States. Oh, and I forgot to mention, the FBI is hot on his trail when he's in the States. They've got wind of this entire plot, and they're questioning Morgan, and he's not giving them anything. But now the FBI and the CIA are involved, putting pressure on Morgan. J. Edgar Hoover have been wanting to bring down uh, Morgan for months, not to mention Castro. We talked to Michael Sala about everyone who's involved, but Michael also has William Morgan's FBI file. And they knew everything about him. And there were um, former Batista bigwigs, as well as the American, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the CIA, the FBI. They were all watching this whole scheme unfold because they wanted Fidel to get thrown out of power. Morgan played along. He made several trips to Miami. He was given money. He was given weapons, deliveries of weapons that ended up going out in boats back to Cuba. And um, all this is playing out. Morgan's in Miami having a final meeting, and Trujillo and the plotters, they have everything in place. They're ready to move. Morgan and his men are to take the city of Trinidad. That's the signal to land the men, to kill Castro, airstrikes, the whole nine yards. Morgan's supposed to meet with the FBI. They're going to arrest him, most likely. They want to meet with him. He's clearly up to something. They don't want this coup to happen. Hoover, especially because if Castro sees a plot to overthrow, being run by an American... That'll harm their relations with, with Cuba. It would jeopardize the thousands of Americans living in Cuba. 
Morgan gives him the slip in Miami and boards a boat to start this fictitious war. The FBI even calls Castro the night before the alleged coup to tell him about it. William Morgan's behind it. It's not the U.S. government. But anyways, they get there, and Morgan and his team, they cut the power to Trinidad. Morgan calls the Dominican Republic. He calls Trujillo and says it's a go. They fire some mortars in the air. It looks like a war, and the plotters have begun landing in planes. Castro wanted to wait for more men to arrive, but he pulls the plug, and they start rounding up the conspirators in Havana. They arrest everyone at these landing points. William Morgan's turn as a double agent is a complete success. We'll let him tell it in an interview the days after the failed coup makes international news and William Morgan becomes a true household name. We went down to Las Vegas and uh, started a fictitious war. Mm-hmm. We started turning off telephones and lights and shooting shots in the dark and all those kind of things so that everybody... This is all this last week. That's right. This has all been a fake. Yeah. It's all been a big show for True Hill. And he fell for it. He started it. He paid for it. He's... He's uh, furnished the guns for it. On the evening of August 10th, 1959, Castro and his army and secret police round up everybody. He even goes to Morgan's home where some of the plotters are there and he shows up personally to see them arrested and to mock them. He invites the international press. He details the plot in a press conference. He celebrates Morgan. We'll show you pictures on our Facebook and, and on our Instagram, the two smiling together at the press conference. Castro says, and I quote, Trujillo appointed William Morgan the leader of the counter-revolutionary plot. He discusses how Morgan, uh, his home, was the command center for the scheme. He points at Morgan during the press conference and says, quote, he is Cuban. He's married to a Cuban. He is not a North American, end quote. Michael Sala, whose book The American Commandante, goes into so much more detail about this plot, how crazy it was that Morgan was able to pull this off, more detail on these meetings and these close calls. The times that it very easily could have gone wrong, it would be a great Hollywood film. I truly hope it gets made. Mike tells us about William Morgan, the Cuban revolutionary hero. Morgan ends up smashing the coup in a very public way. And and all of Trujillo's people are rounded up and the coup has failed now. And Morgan comes out and and, and becomes, and Castro is a big press conference. The international press is there by then. And they tell the whole story of how they played double agent for several months in a nerve-wracking back-and-forth game until finally they could smash the coup. And so Morgan became this very heroic figure. Everybody wants his autograph. The women are all uh, much to Oga's chagrin, jumping at him. And uh, he becomes this hero. He's in the New York Times. He's in, I think, Time Magazine called him, you know, Castro's secret double agent and all these other things. And uh, he becomes very well-known, both in the U.S. and in Cuba. As popular as William Morgan is in Cuba, he is not popular in Washington, D.C. The FBI is furious, and they and some other angry politicians, they decide to take action. They cancel William Morgan's American citizenship. They say he joined a foreign army, thus his citizenship is subject to cancellation. The Second Front was not the armed forces of another country that that rule was meant to enforce, but on September 4th, less than one month after the coup, 1959, William Morgan becomes a man without a country. Trujillo had put a contract out on Billy Morgan's head. The U.S. government would arrest him if he came back to the States. And that's not even mentioning the fact that he crossed the mob and the hundreds of thousands of dollars they had thrown in on the plot. We hear from Michael Sala about the U.S. government response to Morgan's work as Castro's double agent. And we'll hear from Billy Morgan himself when he's asked about a half million dollar price on his head. 
But the United States government is infuriated over what happened. He ended up costing them money and arms and everything else that they helped uh, uh, contribute to. And now the American government is really upset. And uh, they strip him of his citizenship. And they even find a reason to do it, which was totally bogus at the time. But they're so upset at Morgan, they stripped him of his citizenship, uh, embarrassed his parents in Toledo. They were very upset over what happened. And, 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 but Morgan did what he felt was right, because at that point in time, Fidel hadn't shown all of his cards. He hadn't indicated that he was going to forge ties with the Soviets or anything like that at the time. Mr. Morgan and I are sitting in what you might call an armed camp. I can hear voices just outside the window here of the guards, the men who are guarding him. Uh, there are more machine guns lying on a table here just in back of Russ Day and the camera than I've seen since uh, I was in Hungary. Uh, there must be a price on your head, Bill. Uh, half a million dollars at the moment, if uh, they can deliver me alive to Senator Mingo. That's what Trujillo is offering for you? That's the going price in Miami right now. I imagine it'll go up over a period of time. How's it feel to have a half million dollar price on your head? Well, it isn't too bad. They have to collect it, and that's going to be hard. Tony Perrottet wrote the great inside story of the Cuban Revolution in 2019 with his book Cuba Libre, Shea, Fidel, and the Improbable Revolution that Changed World History. He wrote this book by following the trail of the revolution and commuting to Cuba, at first as part of his job as a writer on the Smithsonian Magazine, and then in the book. We talked to Tony about his many trips to Cuba and how it led him to writing this really fun read of a book about the Cuban Revolution. Uh, yeah, the first trip I took was actually in 1996, which was kind of the, the nadir of Cuba's fortune. Yeah, the Soviet Union had, had collapsed and sort of abandoned them. And they were like, uh, it was miserable. But it was fun because, I, you know, I flew down to Bahamas. All I, the only information I had was that it was going to take $1,200 in cash and give it to a guy named Lionel. Oh, yeah, Lionel, right. Yeah. And it was like uh, some of this Bahamian dude. And it was in the disused wing of the airports with these wires hanging down and then so i gave lionel you know this, this money and he sort of gave me these, these handwritten vouchers and there was an old sikorsky you know whatever prop plane there and there's like six of us and we all just went you know creaking over the caribbean and landing and it was a very wild time because it was kind of like cuba was really um in, in a bad way, but it's extremely interesting for me. I lived in South America and, you know, and travel and written about South America for years. I used to live in Buenos Aires. Uh, so that was my first trip. And I, so I wrote about it, you know, when things were really screwed up. And then when the, when the Obama thaw started to, to happen, I got invited on the first um, private jet uh, plane that was going from Miami to Havana. So there was, again, there was only three, very different trips. So I went, you know, it was like you met at the airport and like ushered through and it was like this sort of luxury. And suddenly everything had changed. There were like, there was a couple of luxury hotels. Everything was, you know, you could get, you know, the, the restaurants were sort of booming. There were tons of Europeans there. You know, I asked a friend, Cuba expert. So like, I'd like to, can I just get a little book, you know, that's sort of a fun introduction to the revolution? Not there's like 800 page tomes or whatever, nothing too ideological. And she said, it doesn't exist. You should write it. And of course I was, I just laughed and said, sure. But then when I went down, 
I was kind of like, you went, I went to the Museum of the Revolution. I realized it was like, that was this totally bizarre, you know, Cuban version of things. Then, you know, you come back to the States and you're reading these books and they're very sort of ideological and uh, as well, you know, often by, you know, Miami Cubans, it's like uh, just, you know, sort of distorted. And, then I, and so then I proposed to um, Smithsonian. I'd heard that uh, weirdly uh, up in the Sierra Maestra, uh, Fidel Castro's hideout, you know, guerrilla hideout still existed. They sort of preserved it. It was called the, the Comandancia. Go to Santiago, you got to schlep up, uh, you know, like, you know it's, it's a huge process. You got to stay in some village up there. And I thought, oh God, that's that's interesting. So I suggested that as, as a way of starting a story about, um, you know, following the route of the revolution and finding what exactly happened. So I wrote that for the Smithsonian. And as I wrote it, I realized that, you know, there was so much more stuff and, um, and then the, the flights were starting to open up as well. And suddenly there's like direct flights from New York to uh, Havana. And so they gave me the book and I was like, okay, I've been there like a, a dozen times at least. I was just, it was like the first commuting book on Cuba. Cause I, you know, I could go down for a week, go to the archives, yeah. get things in process and then come back to New York. I didn't have to like settle in for six months waiting for everything to happen, which, you know, is a little wearying. I mean, much as I love Havana, it's kind of a difficult city. There's a link in the show notes to buy Cuba Libre, and we'll share it on our Facebook and Instagram as well. I really do suggest picking it up. It's, a, it's, it's an excellent book. Tony's such a fun interview. We also had to ask him about his 2020 podcast that he started uh, and ended in 2020 called History Unzipped. Some great episodes and interviews with some pretty famous author friends of his, looking into some of the seedier stories and rumors you've heard of if you're a history nerd. As good as the show as it was, you can find it on iTunes or wherever you get your pods, but don't expect it to come back anytime soon. Uh, it was a very, it was very much a pandemic project, a lockdown yeah, yeah. project. I was there, you know, people were always telling me, "Ah, oh, you should, you should do a podcast, should do a podcast," and I'm like, "Oh yeah." Um, <laughs> but it uh, finally, I'm like, I'm stuck at home, and I'm like, "Okay, I'm going to do it." And I had written a couple of books that involved underground erotic history. So basically, one of them was called Napoleon's Privates, which is uh, about you know, Napoleon's penis, which was allegedly removed from his body at the autopsy. And it's just these weird stories from history about Catherine the Great and the Casanova's <laughs> pickup lines or whatever. Uh, these little stories that, uh, that everyone sort of knows. So then you go back and look in, into the reality behind it. And I thought, okay, I can just do those. And, some are, and so I do interviews and it was fun to do and I'm glad I worked it all out. But then I realized that it was, it was a lot of work <laughs> doing a podcast. And it's like, and I listened to these other podcasts. It's like, oh, yeah, they're great. And then at the end, you know, it turns out they've got editors, they got writers, they got producers, they got whatever. At the end of one of them, I was like, you know, um, written by Tony Perrottet, edited by Tony Perrottet, uh, you know, music by Tony Perrottet, catering by Tony Perrottet, janitorial services by Tony Perrottet. You know, it was kind of like, it was just a lot of work to do well. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. In the struggle between communism and democracy, 
whose side, where is your heart, and where well, is your feeling? Really, democracy is my idea. I am not communism. I am not agree with communism. There is no doubt for me between democracy and communism. That voice you heard was Fidel Castro in an interview on American television in 1959. And look, hindsight's 2020. Clearly, Fidel Castro built a repressive, socialist dictatorship in Cuba. Thousands were jailed, even killed by the state. Cuba went down a path in the Cold War that they really still have not recovered from. Everybody is the worse for it. The Cuban people seem to have had enough, as we'll talk about later, but it's important in history to put yourself there at the time. You have the benefit of knowing how it turns out, but in the summer of 59, William Morgan, the American government, the Cuban people, they didn't know Castro would ally himself with the Soviet Union. But the U.S. takes a confrontational stance towards Castro, his new government. There's no aid package offered to the Cubans. The Eisenhower administration decides to stop buying Cuban sugar, which was a huge deal, their number one export by far. Into the void steps Nikita Khrushchev and the Soviet Union, setting up what would ultimately become an event that threatened life itself for this entire world, only a couple of years later with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Tony talks to us about Castro sliding into socialism. He was a sort of a nationalist, sort of a, a little left of center, but, you know, uh, and very pragmatic. So what he, he cobbles together this alliance of everybody, but he does always say that he's not a communist because he knows that, um, you know, Americans are <laughs> crazy anti-communists, especially in 1959 in the Cold War. He wants Cuba to be economically and you know, politically uh, independent. But unfortunately, this means that uh, it puts him on a crash course with the United States. The Americans, since the, you know, the taking over Cuba during the Spanish-American War, in 1898, the Americans owned all the best land. They owned the telephone systems. They owned the, the railways, anything useful. And the investment was so big. So when he, you know, his, one of his big things is land reform. Uh, but that means breaking up these giant, giant farms that are run by people like the United Fruit Company. It's as if the Americans didn't really believe he was going to do what he said he was going to do. This tit for tat starts. Fidel will do one thing, the Americans will you know, block sugar, in, you know, imports. And then suddenly the Russians are sort of there going, hey, we'll buy the sugar you know, and it will buy it at an inflated price. I mean, this is the Cold Wars. And then it starts to seem like the Americans might might invade. Yet things get so bad. So the Russians, are they're, you know, supplying arms and tanks and whatever. And uh, it's kind of tragic, you know, because Cuba was really a pawn uh, in this sort of larger game. And neither, neither place really cared that much about Cubans. It was kind of like it was part of a giant, you know, chess game, unfortunately. Soviet Vice Premier Anastas Mikhayan visits Cuba and after a few weeks signs a landmark deal, a trade deal, with Castro. Fidel decided, pressured by his communist friend Che Guevara and his brother Raul, that aligning with the Soviets was the obvious move. They would support his regime in its very precarious position with military aid, financial aid, trading Russian oil to the island. This relationship could be very beneficial to Castro. It gave him legitimacy on the world stage allowed him to project his power across the globe. Unfortunately, millions of Cubans would suffer under this alliance. Our friend, Cuban native and University of Dayton history professor Juan Santa Marina, he rejoins the show to discuss the Machiavellian decision of Fidel Castro in 1960 to go communist. Fidel Castro in particular is, is a master sort of world politician, and he understands the shape and, and status of the world, and he knows what he can exploit or not exploit. And so ultimately when he's making decisions about how he stays in power, how what he wants to do happens in Cuba, 
it's all within this kind of evaluation of the bipolar world and and how is he going to be able to carry it out and ultimately he he makes a decision that that the soviet sphere um is more beneficial to him as long as he is able to at least limit soviet power in cuba william morgan is not a communist he grew up in america in the 1940s he's pissed about what he's hearing about the moves of castro and his government Castro's on TV giving one of his hours-long speeches about the threats to the revolution. Morgan's watching it, and he's had enough. He gets out of bed, and, and he races down there to give Castro a piece of his mind. The guts it took to go do that are only equaled by just how reckless of a move it was. Mike Sala tells us about when Morgan officially crosses Fidel Castro on live television. Morgan was very upset. He didn't risk his life to communism, and he does... Once when, when Castro starts to forge alliances with the Soviets, Morgan's people in the, in the second front immediately tell him there's intelligence officers in the second front who are well networked and wired into Cuba. And they're getting the word that the Soviets are coming in. They're training the, the Cuban military now and everything else. And Morgan's upset. And at one point, Castro gets on TV and starts ranting and raving about Americano, Americans go home, go home, this and that. Morgan becomes very upset. So he arrives at the TV station. He jumps in his car, much to the dismay of his bodyguards, and they all jump in the car and follow him. He's in the car in front of them. And he's revving off to the TV stations and Olga's telling the men, please catch up. Please make sure he doesn't. She knew his predilections and what he was capable of doing. She certainly knew, was well aware of his temper. And he arrives at the TV stations and he, and he confronts Fidel. And he says, look, this isn't about Americans and this. This is about what you're going to do. And they go back and forth. And Castro, at this point, realizes that Morgan's not on his side, that none of them are on his side that they've clearly drawn a line and he embarrassed Fidel. And Olga remembers looking at Fidel in his eyes and just seeing how upset, how pissed off he was. And she realized that we're done, we're, we're toast. William Morgan and the Second Front see things closing in around them. Members, even commandantes, are getting arrested. Olga has a daughter. She's pregnant with another child with William. She wants to leave Cuba and politics and the revolution behind forever. Morgan's living in that big house in Miramar, and former rebels would show up and just sleep on the floor. When Castro goes full communist and officially shuts the second front out, Morgan makes a decision to start raising arms against the government. It's in secret. He's too famous to be running guns himself, but he begins working with the United States government they're even supplying weapons to his effort. But his biggest problem was he was the most popular member of their group. As much as Castro was angry about him upstaging him at the television address, he still respected Morgan. His work on the coup, his status naturally made him somewhat untouchable, and he thought he could protect his guys if he stayed. Mike Sala tells us about William Morgan raising a new army to go fight another war in the Escambray Mountains. He could have left, and he would have been all right in the United States again because he had kind of redeemed himself and shown himself to be somewhat of a, you know, rebel leader. And, a kid. and at that point in time, a lot of Americans, you know, felt that the Batista government was corrupt, right? But I think for him, it was if he had left, he would have abandoned his men. And he couldn't do that. He knew that it would be open season on them by Castro if he left. Could he have left in a heartbeat? 
he would have been fine. He could have moved to Miami and maybe wrote a book, maybe made a movie, whatever they wanted to do. He didn't want to do that. He felt that if he had left, his men would be in harm's way. At that point in time, he started uh, raising an army, the Escambra. He had quite a few people following him. The CIA by then was dropping guns. We believe at least one or two of those drops went to Morgan's people. He had a whole arsenal of weapons ready to go. And at that point in time, there was the Bay of Pigs uh, invasion was being planned. And we have every reason to believe that Morgan knew about it was going to become a part of it. The Bay of Pigs was going to be predicated on an invasionary force coming in to that area known as the Bay of Pigs, and that there would be an insurrection concurrently on the island at the same time, and that Morgan would be one of the leaders of that effort in the mountains. William Morgan is secretly determined to start a new revolution for the Cuban people, this time with the backing of the U.S. government and possibly in coordination with an attack planned by Cuban exiles. In the meantime, he's keeping up the front that he's running a government-funded fishery and he's trying to carve out a living for his family, which he is doing. But all that comes to an end when Castro gets wind of what Morgan has really been up to. He had spies in his detail and they had Morgan arrested under a ruse. He was going to the, uh, supposed to, um, he was supposed to have a meeting with the agricultural department, uh, Department of Agriculture in Cuba. By then they had allowed him to raise frogs and to do these other conservation efforts. Yeah. And that was his way of trying to just, you know, allowing he and Olga just to live in peace. At that point, they had these huge frogs in these farms and they were shipping them off to restaurants in the United States where they're very popular. Frog legs were like huge in the 50s and the 60s in American steakhouses and such. They were like the, the surf and the turf, right? Uh, during that time, these frogs were really popular. If it, but, you know, um, so he arrives at the agriculture department to talk to the Department of Agriculture and he's arrested and they throw him in um, in uh, in prison and uh, they charge him with um, leading an insurrection on the island against Fidel and to raise uh, he was raising his own uh, forces to try to um, topple the regime. Morgan is arrested in October 1960 and imprisoned in La Cabana, the famous political prison in Havana run by Che Guevara. Michael Sala's research is so thorough, he has Morgan's letters from jail. Morgan's somebody who was ultimately canceled by Cuban revolutionary history, but Mike has them, and we asked Michael about Morgan's trial before the revolutionary court. Those were done deals. Those That was all Fidel saying, this guy lives, this guy dies, most of them died. He, first of all, appeared at his trial and gave a very dramatic speech, but they didn't care. And he said, I wasn't here. I didn't betray the revolution. I helped the revolution. And I never betrayed the revolution. The revolution is still a part of all of us. We believe in freedom. We believe in democracy. And, you know, basically, you didn't do it. We did it. And, and, um, um, so he's, he's, um, he writes, he goes back to his cell while he's waiting for their decision. And he's visited by a journalist, uh, by the name of Henry Raymond. Henry was a reporter then for United Press International, one of the other wire services. They had a long talk and, he, and I, I've interviewed Henry and he said that Morgan was absolutely not a bit of fear in him whatsoever. He accepted his death. He was calm. It was almost like they were just having a conversation. In the course of his trial, he writes a letter to his mother 
into his wife. And that wife, that letter was smuggled out to Olga. And um, in the letter to her, he said, revenge is not the answer. You know, these are, this is what happens in revolutions. and takes time for them to play out. But just remember the truth. And remember that we didn't do anything to ever betray Cuba. Cuba's in my heart and uh, I've made my peace with God. And on March 16th, 1961, Morgan's date with the wall occurs. William Morgan, he died like the badass he was in life. He showed no fear. Maybe that's because he was confident and the revolution would carry on without him. And Castro and Shea would be taken out. Morgan knew of a coming attack on the regime. But the incredible life of the American Commandante was coming to an end. Morgan spent several months in La Cabana, the prison there, a famous prison. So the, a priest, Juan McNiff, arrives. Morgan, you know, in his Catholic faith, wore a rosary around his neck and has his last confession with Father McNiff, who then joins him in the death car uh, as they drive him to the wall. And uh, he prays the whole, entire time, according to the letter that Juan McNiff wrote um, uh, to his, uh, his religious order. Um, he was an Augustinian priest. Morgan prayed the entire time, gets to the wall, refuses to be blindfolded or handcuffed, asked Father McNiff before, as they line him up against the wall, he hugged the head of the, the firing squad and said, I you know, forgive you for what you're about to do. You know, Tell the boys, I forgive them as well. There is a rumor. We don't know if this is true. We've heard it from several sources, but I've never been able to ascertain it, that somebody yelled out, kneel and beg for your life, Yankee. And he responded, I kneel for no man. He uh, is marched to the wall. He is, um, he's executed. The Bay of Pigs, something you might have heard about in a history class, it's ultimately a failed attack on Castro's Cuba only a month after Morgan's death. Really one of the last legitimate attempts to remove Castro, but it was flawed in its planning, its execution, and its support from the highest levels of government in the United States. Our guest, Juan Santa Marina, professor of Latin history at the University of Dayton, tells us how the Bay of Pigs attack unfolds, and we hear a newsreel of a hopeful beginning to the attack. So the Bay of Pigs is in many ways, a culmination of quite a bit of, of time and, and diplomacy or lack of diplomacy between the U.S. and Cuba and the U.S. and Cuba and the Soviet Union. And there is a sense, I think, in, in Cuba that things will happen at some point, uh, what it will look like. There is, to some extent, uh, an understanding in Cuba that there are troop movements in the U.S., for example, and, and things that are happening that are, are out of the ordinary. The training of the 2506 Brigade, which is the Bay of Pigs, you know, Cubans that, that ultimately are the attack force, main attack force, that is fairly secretive. There's sort of a, a rising level of tension. And ultimately, the Bay of Pigs, I mean, if, if, if we kind of look at it more closely, the Bay of Pigs, the way it unfolded as a D-Day type of uh, invasion, that really was not originally the intent. I mean, the intent of, of the Bay of Pigs or the intent behind the training of people was um, a more subversive approach to landing people in Cuba and different places and um, building a, a movement from, from the ground up inside of Cuba. U.S. presidential elections sort of get in the way of, of 
everything that's happening, uh, the transition from Eisenhower to JFK, there's a number of things that are, are taking place. And so what the thing is begins to change and it begins to change toward this, you know, amphibious assault essentially in this one particular place. The assault has begun on the dictatorship of Fidel Castro. Cuban army pilots opened the first phase of organized revolt with bombing raids on three military bases. Two of the B-26 light bombers then seek asylum in Florida. On the heels of the air raids, landings were effected by rebels at several places on the Cuban coast, and the rebellion against the red-tinged dictator was on. Meanwhile, at the United Nations, Cuban Foreign Minister Roa accused the United States of unleashing a war of invasion. Roa says the invading soldiers trained in Florida, but Ambassador Stevenson makes a quick denial. In Cuba itself, the people have been exhorted by Castro to push back the invader, and 300,000 militiamen have been mobilized. The invasion was successful in its early hours, with Castro, of course, blaming the U.S. Is it the first chink in his armor? After the Cuban exiles attack and successfully overwhelm the local militias, Fidel Castro takes direct control of his army. He brings in artillery, air power, and President Kennedy refused to follow Eisenhower's original plan, calling for extensive air and sea power after the attack. The Bay of Pigs invasion would last only four days. Many think the Cubans were tipped off beforehand, and Juan Santa Marina tells us why the attack plan is so flawed and quickly comes unraveled also coincides with uh, the new administration's sort of lack of desire to intervene um, very, you know, in, in a way that that would be easily recognized in terms of either naval or aircraft um, power, air power into an area which is it's really kind of a, a pretty bad place. I mean, it's 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 called the it, it's it's a swamp where where they go. There is a it's a beach. And there's a bay, um, but it's a, a, an area of Cuba that is really surrounded by swamps, one way in, one way out for the most part. And so if you're going to you know, invade someplace, that probably wasn't the ideal way of doing it. The new administration decides that it's not really going to, to fully support this with naval or air power and certainly not land troops. Then once the invasion does happen, it pretty quickly falls apart. With the Castro government completely victorious over the invading rebels, there is despair and confusion among the relatives of the insurgents. In Miami, they besiege the headquarters of the Revolutionary Democratic Front, seeking some news of sons and brothers. With Castro claiming the capture of 500 invaders and threatening them all with the firing squad, these weeping women see no chance for their loved ones. Meanwhile, in Havana, expectant crowds await the first appearance of Castro since the invasion began. He takes to the air for a four-and-a-half-hour vituperative attack on the United States and puts an end to rumors that he was incapacitated. Could Morgan have made a difference? I, I don't know if he would have made a difference if he had his army up in the Escambray at the same time to create a two-front war. We talked with Tony Perte just about U.S. foreign policy in the 1950s. You can go back and listen to our episode earlier this year about uh, Ohio versus McCarthyism uh, and just this idea of how anti-communism had become such a big deal in American politics. But really, Tony talks to us about how we sacrifice our ideals of democracy and free elections to get a worse result in many cases. It's something we still see today when you look at our relationship with the Saudi government. Their war in Yemen, it still goes on. We talk with Tony Perte about the tragedy 
of United States policy in the 1950s, and how we go against our most sacred ideals only to get a worse result. You know, sinister figures around, uh, around the world that the US was starting to back. It's, it, it is tragic because after the Second World War, there was this huge international goodwill to the United States came and like, saved the world. You know, it's like uh, an extraordinary thing. And then that sort of tips in the 50s, you know, where, uh, you know, in the Cold War game, they like any, anyone who's sort of like any even vaguely lefty, you know, the, uh, uh, the United States decided it's better to have like dictators that support their interests. Che was in Guatemala when, um, in 54, when uh, there was a, there's a coup uh, where the, the US government, you know, and the CIA just go in and like blitz a democratically elected, you know, lefty, uh, lefty government. And like there's uh, Americans there and they're like, what? They see, you know, fighter planes with American insignia flying over and like bombing and it's like what's going on they want Cubans to still be like infantilized really that they can't do anything for themselves and of course it, it couldn't have ended up worse if someone had said you know someone had told the CIA you know that like in, in 1960 by 1962 you know Soviet missiles are going to be heading towards Cuba to have a you know a Russian base they would have thought it was like science fiction you know, and, the, and the Russians wouldn't have even, they wouldn't have taken it seriously. It wasn't a communist revolution. It wasn't an urban thing. It was all going on in the countryside, which they didn't really think was the way things were meant to go. So it was only later that they're like, oh, wow, these are like these young dudes are like the, you know, the Bolsheviks of old. Fortunately, the United States decided it was more in their interest to have, you know, some sinister figure like Batista. You know, it's like no one can understand. Like he's just torturing and murdering his own people constantly. And it's like, what the hell? One part of the story we didn't finish is what happens to Olga. Well, she's pursued, she's captured after William Morgan's arrested. She's tried and imprisoned herself. The mother of two young daughters is thrown in a Cuban prison, and Mike Sala interviewed her, and the conditions were as bad as could be. But she does make it to Ohio, and like William promised her, in the Buckeye State, she would be taken care of. Olga ends up going into prison. She's arrested. Her The two daughters, they had two beautiful young girls, they were both taken by the mother to raise. And Olga ended up going to prison for 10 years, living in the worst situation. Some people feel like Morgan got out 1961, March. He's, he shot and killed against the wall at La Cabana. And at that point, he was out of his misery. She had to live 10 more years in Castro's prisons. And she endures untold hardships. And she was in solitary confinement. She had rats crawling across her body at night. She, she had to go to the bathroom, a hole in the floor. There wasn't a lot for her, but she gets out 1971. She has to live in a convent in Havana because if she goes back home to Santa Clara, the G2, the secret police were always harassing her. And she lived there and she helped make things with the nuns. She made, she knitted things. And, and then eventually 1980, one of the nuns tells her, you need to leave, you can get out now. They're leaving on boats through the Peruvian embassy. And it was called the Mariel Boat Lift. And Castro was allowing all these boats to leave the island and was emptying out his prisons. And Olga jumps on one of the last boats to leave Cuba. The Cuban Navy even shot into her boat as she was leaving and it was taking on water and barely made it to Key West, but it got there. And she gets out, she kisses the ground and she eventually makes contact with people that knew William Morgan in Toledo. One of them um, flew her to Toledo on a flight, and that's where she met Loretta Morgan, Morgan's mother. And she took her in, and then Olga eventually settled in quietly into the tapestry of life in Toledo. 
she became, she started working with migrants because she could speak some English and, and obviously Spanish. And that was her life. And um, she lived quietly. She remarried. Eventually her children uh, came here and then she helped raise them and also her grandchildren. It shows us the resilience of people and, and who they are. And um, Olga endured so much. And yet when you meet her, she's a free spirit. She, yes, she carries heartache, but she's also one who is so grateful for her freedom. She loves America. She is really the living embodiment of William Morgan today. But days of dissent with chants of liberty and freedom sweeping through the streets of Havana and other cities. Stones thrown at police and dumpsters overturned. The rarity of this type of protest in the communist country still sinking in. As we started doing interviews and prepping for this show, the island-wide protests erupted in Cuba. The first protest of their size and scope since 1994, really, when Cuba was at its lowest point following the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's a complicated situation in Cuba. Without an entire change of the political and economic system on the island, there really won't be that much change. American support would be necessary to get Cuba back on its feet, and right now that's just not a high priority on the American foreign policy checklist. We asked Juan Santa Marina, our guest and professor of Latin American history at the University of Dayton, about how he sees the unfortunate situation in Cuba in 2021 and what he would advise the Biden administration to do about it knowing there's limited options under today's politics for a president when it comes to Cuba. It's actually very similar to 93, 94. Yeah. I, when I was there, and I was in Cuba those years doing research, and I saw the same thing then that I see now of a economic collapse and, you know, really, really difficult situation that, you know, of course, then blows up into the only way in which people know how to ask for something, and, and that is, you know, these demonstrations. You know, at the end of the day, there isn't much that anybody can do to improve the situation for people in terms of food or vaccines or anything like that. Um, I mean, yes, the U.S. can provide as many vaccines as Cuba needs pretty easily, actually, and could probably um, provide food and, and things of that nature. But, but ultimately, those are short-term things. I mean, what we see in Cuba right now is a culmination of several decades at this point of nothing gets really better. But that if the U.S. really wanted to craft um, a foreign policy toward Cuba, my advice has been for a couple of decades straight that you essentially flood Cuba with American goods, American money, end the embargo as quickly as you can, provide as much as, as possible of what is outside of Cuba. You know, when, when Cuba, a number of years ago, started um, putting in Wi-Fi access and cellular access and things of that nature, I said, well, if that continues to evolve, at some point it will have an impact and it will not be a good impact or it will not be a positive impact for the government in place. I mean, more information, greater sharing of information, greater access to seeing what is out there is not good for the Cuban government and its, it's massive failures over the, the, the decades. Normalization of relations did happen at the end of, of Obama's presidency, but that's fairly small. I mean, we're talking really kind of sort of legitimizing of relationship with a formal embassy, but not much else really change for the most part. Some greater or lesser um, 
family visits or allowing family visits and, and tourism and exchange of dollars, but really not a wholesale sort of, of change. And then of course, that's been up to the vagaries of whatever administration's in office. And so it comes and goes. Um, most recently it went. The only interest that the US has in Cuba right now is that it doesn't devolve into chaos and force the U.S. to have to do something more significant. More than anything, there's a certain amount of sort of humanitarian concern for, for what's happening in Cuba. But really in terms of world politics, global politics, real politic, it's just not really relevant anymore. As we leave you today, uh, thank you guys so much for listening to this two-part episode. We're just fascinated by the story of, of William Morgan and the Cuban Revolution. We were watching Mike Sally give a a presentation when the book came out talking about how in his death William Morgan found his redemption we leave you today when we asked Mike what did he mean by that he said to his mother in the letter remember it's not uh, when we die it's how and what he really meant was there was no way he was going to cower or beg for his life or anything because they used to try to make the insurrectionists do that and Morgan just was like the complete opposite he went to the wall and died as a man and um, I think what we talk about often is that Morgan in his, look, here was a guy that was a never-do-well, right? He was always in trouble with the law, goes AWOL from the army, uh, runs as a mob, he's, he's an errand runner from the mob. He goes to Cuba, he finds a cause, he finds his true love, and in the end, he died for a cause. In many ways, he was a martyr. In his death, we, we believe that he really found his redemption. Um, as a man, as a human being, that he wasn't all the bad things that people ever said about William Morgan. They couldn't say that about him in the end because he gave his life for, the, for his beliefs. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading, and I like reading, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, from the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue, Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation today is The Yankee Commandante The Untold Story of Courage, Passion, and One American's Fight to Liberate Cuba by our guest Michael Sala and co-author Mitch Weiss they wrote this book or did the research for this book as part of a three-part story when they wrote together at the Toledo Blade. I did start to pull records from the courthouse, marriage records, and I went back and I found an Olga Rodriguez. And I believe it also said she was from Santa Clara in, in Cuba. So I thought, this is, this is the person. This is what I'm looking for. So I, I tracked her address down and rather than call you just don't want to call because you don't want to give them an opportunity to you know slam the door we call those coyote runs and i went to her home knocked on the door and this woman answers the door it was obvious to me she 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 looked like could have been olga rodriguez morgan and as it turned out it was and she didn't want any visitors and she said who are you and 
we kind of went back and forth. It, 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 she wasn't unpleasant, but she didn't want to be bothered. Yeah. I gave her my business card. I said, look, if you change your mind, please call me. I really love to talk to you. I get a call about two days later and it was Olga speaking in very broken English and saying, okay, I've checked you out. You're okay. You can come by. I went over there with my tape recorder and notebooks. I can only tell you for the next three days, I sat there, you know, obviously going back every day, turning on the tape recorder and listening to this just stunning story of how they weathered the revolution together, how they helped restore some level of peace in Cuba, and then how her husband eventually began raising his own army in the Escambray Mountains of Cuba when it was clear that Fidel Castro was not going to allow free election. I can tell you I was probably in tears the third day listening to her story. She brought out photos of them together in the mountains holding these semi-automatic rifles. She brought out um, documents, marriage records, fate, as I said, faded photographs. And uh, all these things were helping me piece together this just very amazing story. And I felt very fortunate that she would share with us her story because she hadn't talked about this. Morgan had always told her, if you can ever get out of Cuba, my mother is in Ohio. She'll take care of you. And Mike was so great to, to join us. We'll put a link in the show notes to this book, but there's so much great stuff that we couldn't even get into these two hours for this episode. And again, his book reads like a movie. And if they're going to make this movie, I sure sure as hell hope they read Michael's book. That'll do it for today. Again, if you haven't listened to part one, uh, it's a little late, but you should still go back and do that. We'll be back in two weeks on our normal schedule for episode nine. We'll be talking about Ohio versus Sunshine State. as We'll be looking at the role of Ohio and famous Ohioans and turning Florida into what Florida is today. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show. We'll read those reviews on the air. Just scroll down. You can do it on your phone. Uh, leave us a five star if you don't have time to, to write a 30-second review. But we really appreciate everybody listening. Share the show on your Facebook with your friends when you're out at the bar, if you're at dinner, if anyone you think that's interested in U.S. history or Ohio history. Uh, and we'd love to have them uh, join us, one of our listeners. Thanks again. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Keep enjoying your summer. Infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on, it wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.